Tanse, that's hello in Cree. Welcome to Catching Frogs. I'm Wendy Stewart. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of this project on my journey to reconnect with my Cree and Métis roots and to revisit the history of Canada through the lens of Indigenous women and their significant contribution. But none of this would be possible had it not been for the tireless commitment of Donna Sutherland, my second cousin, and the 10 years of her dedicated research. We begin. I have been discussing the various historical records we have relied on in the past for a picture of Indigenous people during the fur trade. I read the writing of James Isham and Andrew Graham with some caution, aware of their European bias. I finished episode three with mention of Victor Litwin's Original People of the Great Swampy Land, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2008. In his acknowledgments, Litwin wrote of his purpose, quote, to challenge many stereotypical views of the lowland Cree in the previous literature, end quote. When I saw those words on the first page, I was hooked. I learned a great deal from this book, as if I was looking at history with fresh eyes. I am most interested in the period of 1770 to 1870, the second hundred years of the Hudson's Bay Company. But before this, the impact of the fur trade on lowland Cree, says Litwin, was immediate and intense. These newcomers relied on lowland Cree to provide them with food. Indigenous people were helpful, sharing their knowledge and giving their support freely. The Cree taught the men to navigate the north, among all the other survival techniques. The company dominated life within the Hudson Bay watershed from 1670 to 1870, building forts along the coast, expecting Indigenous people to come to the forts to trade, which they did. The European record of that time deemed the coast of Hudson Bay uninhabited before their arrival, and this was not disproved until 1960. No reliance was extended to the oral histories of the Lowland Cree, overlooking the facts found within these histories, histories that clearly show Lowland Cree dwelled on the coast long before contact. It was convenient for Europeans to deem these lands vacant when claiming ownership of it. The Lowland Cree lived a pattern of moving with the food supply, the migration patterns of the caribou, to secure an adequate supply of food, and were not always present when explorers appeared. Their lifestyle of moving was good for the environment. No area was overhunted because of the regular hunting patterns throughout the year, a benefit to all facets of the natural world. The Lowland Cree occupied about 2,000 kilometers of the Hudson Bay coastline. Archaeologists in 1961 deemed the coastal regions vacant without having any supporting archaeological evidence of such a claim. But according to Litwin, in 1878 and 1879, Robert Bell found pottery in the lowlands predating contact. Unfortunately, the artifacts were left in storage and ignored for nearly a hundred years. (laughs) 
My ancestors came from the Hudson Bay Lowlands. The Omishkego inhabited a vast area while maintaining connections through marriage and social relationships. Litwin writes of the visible line between the lowlands and uplands, beyond which the rivers change. In the lowlands, the rivers flow more gently, without rapids. One historian wrote that the Albany River was so straight that it could not be discerned what was river, what was Hudson Bay, and what was sky when paddling toward the mouth of the river. The lowlands are rising 1.3 meters every hundred years as they rebound from the weight of the glaciers, according to OntarioBeneathOurFeet.com. The Hudson Bay lowlands have the largest area of wetlands in the world. Omishkego, also known as the Swampy Cree, occupied most of the lowlands, leaving the north and south extremities vacant to avoid conflict with enemies. Litwin wrote that the river basins provided significant territorial boundaries. The Swampy Cree were coasters who dwelled near the coast of Hudson Bay and James Bay, and inlanders who lived on the swampy grounds. The coasters had little use of canoes because their access to canoe-building materials was seriously limited, so they relied on their legs and dog sleds to get around. Canada's first museum was created in Halifax in 1868. Before this, there was little interest in the past. In 1926, the first Canadian university to offer courses in archaeology was the University of Toronto. And by 1946, this was a well-established field of study. But little attention was directed to the Hudson Bay lowlands. In 1960, interest turned to the study of fur trade settlements, and the truth about the lowland Cree started to take shape. Artifacts of Indigenous culture were found, but still given little focus. These areas were covered seasonally by ice and water, removing much evidence of the past. But studies continued, and in 1978, David Riddle made archaeological finds, calculating the materials to be 5,000 years old. Evidence was unearthed to provide certainty that the lowland Cree lived and dwelled on the land long before the fur trade era. Something struck me about Litwin's reference in his book to writers of the fur trade era. He references four quotes by four different writers in four different locations at roughly the same time, each making the same observation, while misunderstanding the greater lesson they were witness to. I have read many of the post-journals written by these men found in the Hudson's Bay Company archives within the Manitoba archives. In 1815, William Hemmings Cook of York Factory wrote, There are no chiefs or men of consequence among the lowland Cree. They assert no claim or prescriptive right to the country they inhabited. End quote. In 1815, James Swain of Severn House wrote, The Indians of this country have not the smallest idea of exclusive right to any particular hunting grounds. End quote. And in 1815, James Sutherland of Norway House wrote, The hunting ground is common to the whole, and any stranger may come and enjoy the same privilege without molestation. End quote. 
And finally, in 1815, George Holdsworth in Barron's River wrote, The tribes generally live in peace and friendship. End quote. The lowland Cree believed the land was a living being. They worshipped the land. They lived on the land. You can't claim ownership of a living being. I wonder how that played out in the notion that Charles II could claim rights to and ownership of the land the Omashkego had lived on and with for thousands of years. Again, I recommend you search out the National Post report on July 30, 2022, written by Jessica Mundy, explaining the doctrine of discovery. It is a thorough explanation and clarifies much of what happened when the Hudson's Bay Company moved into North America. The Lowland Cree and other Indigenous nations had no sense that they or anyone could claim the land, nor that such an unimaginable claim could and would take their rights from them. Something I found interesting in Litwin's book is the migration of the Ojibwe from the Lake Huron region to the Rainy Lake area, which is where I grew up. This began in the 1530s, which led to the lowland Cree migrating further north, displaced by the Ojibwe. Alexander Stewart wrote in 1824 that the lowland Cree were, quote, industrious and much more civilized than the Ojibwe, and he credited the trading relationship with the HBC for this fact. But trade had been going on before the establishment of HBC posts. It is more likely that the differing customs between indigenous groups were subjectively judged in comparison with European customs, as we saw from Isham and Graham's writing previously. Another aspect of Lowland Cree that fur trade writers felt compelled to comment was on the pattern of leadership exhibited. William Faulkner, the master at Severn, wrote in his post-log, They are subject to no foreign power, neither have they any monarch of their own, every man being sole governor of his family. End quote. Andrew Graham wrote, The father or head of a family owns no superior, obeys no command. End quote. The Hudson's Bay Company was staffed mostly by Orkney men. The British class structure was spread across the globe, and few company officers paused to consider the style of leadership they were witnessing among Omashkego and its positive attributes as compared to what they took for granted. The lowland Cree were deemed to be egalitarian in nature, but their leadership was well entrenched in their customs before contact, and this leadership was very different from the European construct. In the first trading ventures on the east coast of James Bay in 1668-1670, Zachariah Gillam recognized this difference in leadership structure and wrote about it. Toby Morantz, in his interpretation of Gillam's observations, wrote that the style of leadership confounded some anthropologists. Leadership did not come from a place of force or dictatorship, but instead those who led did so by example, using their superior life skills, wisdom, and experience. This type of leadership tended to follow familial lines. The Hudson's Bay Company provided gifts to those who they thought to be Cree leaders, wanting them to control their people to favor the company. Leaders who ruled, 
but lowland Cree leaders were in their role because of the respect they earned. Wouldn't we have a different society today if Indigenous practice had been adopted rather than crushed? My ancestors were the Swampy Cree, the Omashkego. The Hudson Bay Lowlands was their home, covering 324,000 square kilometres. The chilling ghost fog rolled off the blue-grey water of Hudson Bay, the bay they called Winnipeg by the Omishkego. The tundra was alive with wildflowers. Litwin wrote of the northern oasis, meadows on the tundra providing ample food for the caribou and other lowland animals. It was not desolate, he said, echoing Louis Bird's voice. The land is so much a part of the spirituality of the Cree, they take their name from the physical area which forms their home. The Churchill River is a thousand miles long. The Cree called it Missinippi, meaning big waters. The river runs entirely within the Canadian Shield. Winter is long and cold in the Churchill region, recording very cold temperatures, according to Andrew Graham. Observations on Hudson's Bay filed as E.2-12 within the Hudson's Bay archives. Quote, Appears by observations made at York Fort and the Severn, the mercury on Fahrenheit's standard thermometer was oftentimes at 63 degrees below the cipher, and in summer it rose to 90 degrees above the cipher. End quote. Side note, I have read volumes of journals and post logs in my research, and what could have been said in two or three sentences often required two or three pages. The above-noted temperature explanation is a fine example of excess wordiness, which of course has no bearing on anything aside of making me smile. Litwin tells us this area has evidence of humans dating back 5,000 years, with artifacts identifying trade in stone, seashells from the Atlantic, copper from Lake Superior, red pipestone beads from southwestern Minnesota, all predating the establishment of the Hudson's Bay Company according to the studies of Brownlee and Sims. The lowlands are made up of muskeg in the southern lowlands, shield in the southeast, and tundra in the area north of the Churchill River. The muskeg and peat are home to waterfowl, beaver, bear, muskrat, otters, the shield contains boreal forest with moose, caribou, bear, wolves. The tundra has moss and lichen. Fruit aplenty grew and grows on the tundra. Cranberries, strawberries, raspberries, yellowberries, willow berries, partridge berries, dewberries, huckleberries, juniper berries, black and red and white currants. This abundance grew in the Hudson Bay lowlands and Andrew Graham wrote of these many berries in his notes. The berries were often dried for later use and to flavor dried meat and fish. Litwin wrote, saying the Omishkego's favorite meal was dried meat with polar bear fat and cranberries. The severe cold and short growing season limits the growth of trees on the tundra. Grass, moss, and lichen dominate the landscape, feeding the thousands upon thousands of caribou on their migration routes. The migration of the caribou is both spiritually and physically significant to the Cree, 
following the caribou, learning life as a journey, learning about growth both within and outside the mind, learning adventure and discovery is essential to stay healthy and curious. The caribou provided skins for clothing and meat for sustenance. The caribou was the Omishkego's favorite food, and they wasted no part of the animal. An estimated 3 million caribou crossed the Hayes River in two days in 1792. The Omishkego hunted the caribou using a snare on the ice and from canoes when in the water. Preserving caribou meat became an industry for Lowland Cree, the work done by women. The meat was cut into strips and hung over poles above the fire to dry. Then it was pounded into a fine powder that could be stored for long periods of time. The polar bear is called wapusk and are considered good medicine. Spirits of the Earth, written by Bobby Lake Tom, tells that to dream of a polar bear or to see one in the wild is a good sign. Perhaps that is why people journey to Churchill in such numbers to catch a glimpse of these magnificent bears and possibly to secure a bit of good luck. Samuel Hearn made mention of killing a white bear at Fort Prince of Wales in his post-log of 1780 and 1781, but it was a rare kill. The Arctic hare, Wapos, were snared by the women. Rabbit skin tears easily, but the fur is soft, used in the Tikkanogon or back cradle for infants. The Cree learned from the hares, who stood motionless to disappear an important tactic in tribal warfare. Foxes of several species, the red, the black, and the arctic fox, with its winter white fur and black tip on its tail, grace the tundra. Written accounts speak of the fox being tame, and the Cree learned about camouflage and invisibility from the arctic fox. Only coming out at dusk and dawn, foxes were considered to have supernatural powers, and therefore they didn't fear humans, Wolves were rare and highly honored as spirit guides, helping the deceased find their way back to the Creator. Ted Andrews, author of Animal Speak, deems the wolf the true spirit of an unspoiled wilderness. The hunt for geese and other migratory birds was in the spring, a significant event in securing a food supply. The arrival of the first eagle in early March marked the coming of a new season. Eagles were honored and any drop feathers were collected for use as tools and for clothing. The goose, or niska, was a bird of legend used in oral stories to teach children about cooperation and the importance of communal behavior. Geese always remain with a wounded or sick member of their flock. They take turns leading and following. Geese molt in mid-June to late July and during that time can't fly, so were easy to capture for food. Flight resumed in August. The Cree used weirs for catching fish. The beluga whales provided oil for cooking, and their meat was fed to the dogs. Beaver hunting was difficult work. The lodge walls were often a meter thick. Andrew Graham wrote of the beaver dams being built with wisdom, quote, they are seldom damaged even by the floods which sometimes are very great at the breaking up of the ice in the rivers. I have heard the noise of the water falling over these dams without injuring them. End quote. 
The Omishkego used dogs for travel, for hunting, protection, and survival. The dogs were called a team. Andrew Graham made note in his journals that the dogs would not serve the Hudson's Bay men, and I find that interesting. The Omishkego worked with seasonal rhythms. They timed their movement to the moon. They knew spring had arrived when the eagle returned to the coastal lowlands. They hunted caribou in the summer. They had clearly established trade routes between the St. Lawrence and James Bay, which provided the lowland Cree with access to European goods, as well as goods from the St. Lawrence, such as maple syrup, long before the Hudson's Bay Company set up shop. Champlain wrote about these trade routes in 1603, seven years before Henry Hudson sailed into the Big Bay. What is the significance of me learning and knowing the physical landscape of the Hudson Bay Lowlands? To understand the land Nahoe walked and what she saw. She and her family were part of the Churchill Home Guard. Next, we'll look more closely at the Home Guard Cree. Who were they? Hi, hi, which means thank you in Cree. Hi, hi for listening. Bye for now.